sing as one for this country we're walking on we stand together to protect this land for the future we're hand in hand welcome to another episode of the environmental as anything podcast Professor Bill Mitchell holds the Chair in Economics and is the Director of the Centre of Full Employment and Equity, COFFEE, an official research centre at the University of Newcastle. He's probably most famous as one of the founding developers of modern monetary theory, and it is a great honour to have him joining Environmental as Anything today to help us see the federal budget through a modern monetary theory lens. Bill Mitchell, thank you very much for joining Environmental as Anything today. You're welcome. Thank you. In this uh, week of the federal budget, uh, an extraordinary budget really, after years of threatening to hoard the nation's wealth, uh, our government's cash injections into the economy are at record levels, uh, $213 billion I saw it quoted as. That seems to have uh, only uh, been included at an spending increase of 25%, which is uh, reasonably substantial, but not as massive as it might sound. Is that going to be enough, and is it properly directed to be able to give us the, uh, the recovery we need from the COVID crisis? Well, the answers are no and no. The, the way in which you have to think about the uh, federal spending, uh, and remember, you know, the federal government is issuing its own currency, so it really can spend as much as it likes, unlimited. Mm-hmm. And so the question then is, what defines the limit? And uh, so to do that, you have to think about, well, what's the context? And the context is the state of the economy, the state of non-government spending. And we have measurements like that tell us how we're doing in prosperity terms, in terms of well-being. You know, one of the key indicators that comes out every month is the unemployment rate. Now, it's a, it's a relatively simplistic measure because it ignores a lot of other things like underemployment and that's why the Australian Bureau of Statistics now publishes a broad labour underutilisation, a broad labour wastage, which includes underemployment and that's around 18% at the moment. And so if you then think, okay, well, what do we want really the government to do with its spending? Given that it can spend as much as it wants, mm-hmm. Uh, it's not financially constrained, we shouldn't just evaluate it in terms of a a specific number and say, oh, God, that's a lot, or that's a big change, or that's not much. We should evaluate it in what we want fiscal policy, that's government spending and taxation, to actually achieve. And from my perspective, we want the government to be an agent for us to use its currency to ensure that we've all got jobs, that we're dealing with uh, social challenges like, you know, Australia has 400,000 shortage of social housing Mm. and we've got a massive housing affordability problem. Low-income workers are really, really screwed and we've got, we need about 400,000 houses. So there's, there's social goals. And then, of course, the big the big sleeper, which has been put to the sort of on the back burners in our minds by the health crisis, mm. is is the climate crisis. Yeah, and uh, you know, and the climate crisis is telling unambiguously as each of the icebergs start splitting off and bushfires and all of, all of the th- the signs that we're getting now more regularly is that we need a 
substantial transformation of the way we produce and what we produce and the way we consume and what we consume. Mm. We need a fundamental transformation, not a small iterative process. We need fundamental changes which are going to need substantial investment in renewable energy and substantial disinvestment in carbon intensive type of activities. Mm. Now, if you put those things together, if we want to have full employment, we want to have decent uh, jobs and uh, for anybody who wants it, uh, if we want to have a good health and public education system, uh, a good TAFE system to train young people who don't want to go to university but want to go into trades and other those sort of areas, and we want to deal with climate change, we want to deal with housing shortage, then they're the targets that you then evaluate. Has the government spent enough money? Mm-hmm. And and the, the fiscal statement that was uh, brought out last Tuesday tells us that this, the government has way short of what's needed given the scale of the problems that we currently have got and the collapse of non-government spending due to the pandemic and the, the longer-term needs for substantial investment in public infrastructure to deal with the climate issues. And I haven't even mentioned telecommunications and internet technology (laughs) that we've been completely sold short on by the penny pinching over the NBN. Mm. The very expensive penny pinching in the end. (laughs) Well, I mean, it was a major nation building exercise. You know, you need to invest to nation build. And you go back to the early post-war period, Second World War, when we really were building the nation and with you know the capital infrastructure, the public infrastructure, the health system, the schools, the power generation, the water systems, and all the things that had a lot of investment after the Second World War, well, that 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 required big amounts of spending. Mm. That's what nation building is, and in a way, what what we require at this point in history given the turmoil that we're facing, both in the health health area but also in the climate area, is that we need another, you know, another big nation-building effort of the sort we saw from governments in the 19, late 40s, you know, through the 1950s and 1960s. We're back to sort of that requirement. And the, the fiscal statement last Tuesday, you know, did virtually nothing for climate change. What's the government's strategy? Gas. Mm. It's it wants to develop spend money on gas. Well, you know, gas might be a reasonable transition technology, but it's not the future. It can't mm. be the future. Mm. And you know, we've got uh, the government uh, starving our universities of of funds, mm. uh, allowing universities to sack up to maybe ten or fifteen percent of the workforce currently, creating havoc for young researchers who are our future innovators. You have virtually no money put into TAFE. And I mean, TAFE is where we get our productive tradespeople from. Mm. Uh, that's where we should be getting them from. And uh, so the answer is no, it wasn't enough because it didn't meet those challenges. And, and the second thing is no, it didn't direct funds to where the productive uh, returns in social terms would have been. We're having tax cuts, which you know, unambiguously favour the top income earners. But moreover, even if they were spread out better in equity terms, tax cuts aren't a very good way to stimulate an economy because, and, you know, we saw that in July last year when the first round of the tax cuts came. Everybody was saying, well, why hasn't retail sales bounced? Why why, why is spending not, in, private spending not, in, household spending not increasing? 
Mm. And the answer is that we've got households that have been uh, pushed into you know record levels of household debt. Their individual balance sheets are very precarious, and so if they're getting a rise in disposable income to do with it, they're going to save it and pay off, pay down their debts. They're not going to spend it. So tax cuts in this environment where you've got massive uncertainty, you know, people don't know whether they're going to have an income, they, they don't know whether they're going to be, be able to pay their rent. Uh, what are they going to do with an increase in disposable income? They're going to save it. Mm. And what we need now is, I mean, we've had a, you know, last June quarter, 7% collapse in GDP. That's a, that's a massive spending shortfall. And Household saving ratio went from about five percent to nineteen percent in one quarter. Wow! And uh, you know, and consumption, uh, household consumption spending completely was withdrew, you know, collapsed. Mm. And that's that's predictable in given the the crisis we're in, but that just tells you that uh, we need spending going into the economy now if we want to save jobs and get get things going. And we really want spending going in to the economy where it's going to meet some of these longer term challenges like our training system, our research structures, uh, social housing, uh, re, re, uh, renewable energy, all of those things. Mm. So it, would it be reasonable to sum that up? They're saying a universal free uh, job, housing, health, education and ecological guarantee is what we need and we need to spend as much as it takes to get there for the economy to, uh, to, to be in good shape. Well, that's true. But the other problem then is that when I say the government isn't financially constrained, even though it pretends to be, it's still resource constrained. And this is a really important thing to, for people to understand that the government can spend as much as it likes. It can buy whatever's for sale in its currency, including all idle labour. That, that's, that's a fact. Nobody, nobody who understands anything would, will dispute that any longer. But then the question is, well, what are the limits on government spending? Well, the limits are that it doesn't want to be competing for resources that are currently being used and then try to compete for their use by bidding up prices. Because if, you know, if it does that, of course the government could bid, a, bid private employers away from their current use by paying higher wages and offering higher contracts and all of this sort of stuff. But, sure. The ultimate problem then is it comes up against that real resource constraint and so it would cause inflation to do that. Mm. So when you say we want the government to give us ecological guarantees and housing and jobs and etc., yes, we do. They're the things that will add well-being and environmental sustainability to our future. But it may be that that in do you know the ecological guarantee is a massive transformation. Mm in the way we do things and uh, it may be that the government has to uh, redirect resource it has to redirect resources into the public sector mm. but the but it may have to take them off their existing uses and I'm thinking carbon uses now mm. and so in that context it's not just a matter of spending bids a matter of also balancing that spending with initiatives that will reduce our ability the non-government sector to buy things and use those resources. And so in other so, words, like the power of taxation, it's the carrot and the stick, isn't it, that they need to judiciously apply to these problems. So uh, you mentioned carbon, obviously the carbon tax, a very effective uh, and, uh, and, and economically uh, responsible way of managing um, the problem of carbon pollution. 
If you want to do it through the market, that's that's that will and have no exemption on on the, on who pays the tax and and, and what is taxed. You want to do a market solution, in other words, on all farming output and 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 other things. That's the market way of doing it. My preferred way of dealing with the carbon issue is through the regular structure, a rules-based system. You just tell the coal industry that it's got 10 years or whatever the science tells us. Uh, it's got 10 years and then it closes. Mm. It's just a, it's just a dictate and uh, it doesn't work through the market through a price effect where you put the price up of carbon-intensive goods and discourage people to move away from them. The problem always with market systems is that they uh, they work against the low income groups uh, 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 and they favour those that uh, are in ho- are better off in terms of income and wealth. But you can do it through the market. But I, in that context, I would do it through regulation. Right, right. Speaking of the, the rich and the poor, the, the job maker, as the government's now calling its new subsidy scheme for young workers to get. Uh, uh, a couple of hundred dollars a week given to their employer uh, versus the job guarantee. They're quite different things, aren't they? Well, one's an offer of a job and one's an offer of to help pay some of the salary. Effectively, and, uh, the, the, the offer is to the employer, not to the employee as well, isn't it? It goes into the, the corporate coffers and, the, and, as you say, the big end of town is tends to be favoured by that sort of thing, doesn't it? Well, I mean, the... the the government's approach at the moment is to use what are called wage subsidies. So you basically say, okay, well, the problem of unemployment is that the cost of labour is too expensive and uh, we'll, give, we'll give the employer, the private employer, a portion of that cost to encourage them then to in- increase employment. Now, there's so many things historically that have never worked for wage subsidy. The first obvious thing is it doesn't matter how cheap labour is. If the firm can't sell the, sell the product of the labour, they're not going to employ them. Employment demand is driven by product demand. The, the fir- firms don't want to employ people who make things that they can't sell. And so in a situation where households are now clamming up, not spending much because there's so much uncertainty, I mean, in addition to the fact that the ways in which we uh, typically spend uh, have been, you know, closed down for the time being, you know, concerts, hotels, travel abroad, all these things, you know. So that's one reason why we're not spending as much. But also we always reduce our spending growth when there's deep uncertainty and especially job loss uncertainty. And so that's the first reason why wage subsidies may not, may not uh, have typically not been very effective. But the other thing is that they also introduce uh, massive distortion. And so the employer now has got an incentive with with this particular wage subsidy with teenagers to start sacking older workers and uh, taking on, sack one older worker, take on two younger workers who are less experienced, less productive uh, because they're less experienced typically and uh, save money. And uh, so you have a whole mountain of young workers working relatively inefficiently to the older workers and the older workers get the boot and the firm can get the same output and save money. Now that might increase employment a bit but it means that you know you lose that experience and that the older workers get shafted. 
The other thing is that with wage subsidies always have sunset clauses on them. So typically, you know, a wage subsidy will offer a discount to the firm for six months or something to induce them to employ. Well, what the firms historically do is they employ a person for six months, sack them and then, then take on someone else. And so, you know, the, all of these things are not a very effective effective way to deal with a, a problem that is based not on the cost of labour, it's on it's a spending problem. There's too little spending in the economy and that means that the the government should be spending, not not trying to reduce the cost of labour. Okay, so the job maker doesn't sound like a winner, but what about the job guarantee? I know uh, you've been an advocate for that. What does that what does that mean? Well look, you know, I mean uh, the government can buy all idle labour, that's the reality. So when you've got mass unemployment, it's a political choice. It's not some mysterious market process. It's the fact that there's not enough spending in the economy. Firms don't want to build up unsold inventory, so they sack labour and the people become unemployed. And so instead of becoming unemployed, it would be far better for the government to offer an unlimited, an unconditional job offer to anybody who wants it, to work in unmet social needs, unmet community needs, unmet environmental care needs and the government could easily do that and as long as it paid a social inclusive minimum wage it wouldn't be competing for labour at market prices. I mean the labour that's unemployed has zero market price because it's unemployed, it's mm. got no, no demand for it so there's no bid for its service. There's no inflation in that? There's no inflation in offering a a socially inclusive minimum wage. Uh, socially inclusive means that the person can operate as a citizen and, and enjoy the benefits of society, go out sometimes, go to the football, go to the opera, uh, you know, have a holiday. Uh, go see a, a reggae opera. band. Sure, that'd be a good <laughs> thing to do, but they don't play at the moment. Uh, um, my band hasn't played since March. So. <laughs> uh, we'll play, we're going to play a track from your band at the end of the, the, the show. If that's okay oh, with you? That's fine with me. It's up to you. Uh, a job guarantee is a safety net to make sure that the most disadvantaged worker who really can't get a look in when the labour market is weak, they get a chance to get some income security to get work. And uh, it's not a panacea for everything. It's not the solution. It's part of a solution. And it's far better than leaving those people unemployed for long periods of time. I mean, it's not just better for them, though, is it? It means that they can remain as productive members of the economy. They, they're actually contributing their, uh, their their income back into the economy. So it's not just a, uh, a you know a handout for the for the benefit of people who might be seen to be unworthy. This is an essential component of keeping the economy actually pumping. Yeah, a lot of people then sort of poo-poo and say, oh, they're just make work. They're just non-productive jobs, whatever. Well, you go back to the 1930s, the Great Depression, when 30% of the Australian workforce was unemployed. Mm. One of the projects that were the government decided to to make work, to create directly create jobs to absorb that labour, uh, or, or some of it. And one of the projects that uh, my grandfather was working on, actually, <laughs> Uh, uh, was the Great Ocean Road, mm-hmm. and I don't. And people, most Australians will know that there's a road that runs along the cliffs from Anglesey in Victoria down to Apollo Bay, uh, some of the best surf beaches in the world. Mm. 
and the the Great Ocean Road was built by job creation labour during the Great Depression by government workforce. They chipped out the road on the cliffs it's, and built, built the whole road down there. It goes for about 90 k's. And that's now a billions of dollars tourist resource for Australia. That's now a road that uh, a, a tourist industry sp- has sprung up along, that m- millions of tourists have gone down it, uh, and creates massive revenue for the country and for Victoria. Now, that's that's a contribution that can be made. Mm. And, uh, you know, there's examples. There's a great website that, that documents all of the projects in the United States that were done by, inverted commas, make work labour, uh, you know, the Yosemite National Park, the Tennessee Valley uh, Electricity uh, uh, Program, all of the, and, and hundreds of projects that were done during that period, you know, nearly 100 years ago, 90 years ago, yep. that, that still provide massive benefits to society. So for all of those who say these jobs would just be unproductive waste of time, they just lack imagination. Yes, the failure of imagination seems to be very common within regressive politics. But um, the other part of it, which I think was probably alarming people who might be listening, because for 40 years now we've been trained to believe in the uh, the myth of the deficit and debt, and that you know, somehow this is all going to lead to some catastrophic you know consequence down the track for our children and our imaginary grandchildren. Can you speak to that a bit? Because obviously that's... Uh, a big part of what the modern monetary theory is now kind of exposing this myth. Well, yeah, I mean, the point about deficit is that the government issues its own currency. So it can, you know, I mean, if you, I, I, I'm a Vic, from Victoria, so I follow football, AFL. You know, imagine imagine if three minutes into the third quarter of a football game, the, the umpire blew the whistle and said, the game's got to stop, the scoreboard's run out of points. <laughs> or a rugby game, you know, into the second half, the referee blows the whistle, says, we've run out of points on the scoreboard, we can't continue. Well, that's as ridiculous as saying as a government that issues its own currency and spends it by typing numbers into bank accounts can run out of its own currency. And so the idea that uh, somehow the government needs to tax us or to issue debt to us to, to get the... To get its currency so it can spend it is just nonsensical. Mm. And that whole construct has been used to, uh, for political purposes and ideological purposes to make us think that the government is like us. So as households, we have a financial constraint. We, if we want to spend money, we've got to get it from somewhere. We've got to go to work or we've got to use up some prior savings or we've got to sell assets on eBay or we've got to borrow. That's the reality. And we've got to continually be funding our spending. Well, the federal government's nothing like us. Mm. And, uh, and, and we've been trained and, and uh, indoctrinated to extrapolate our own experience that, oh God, we can run out of money. You know, we've mm. got to be caught, we've got to be careful. Oh, our credit cards might be a bit big this month. We've got to, we've got to pull in the next month and mm. all of the things that, you know, on a, on a weekly basis, households are having to deal with what in one way or another. We've been trained to 
think that that applies to the Australian government. Well, it clearly doesn't. Mm. And uh, the options that we have as households are rather limited, mm. whereas the options that the federal government have are, um, are, are much greater than we think. And really, as I said before, the only thing really constraining what the federal government can do is what real resources are available for it to bring into productive use and and how it can divert real resources from their current use, if they're in use, to serve the public use in the public sector. They're the, they're the problems that the government has, not whether it's got enough money or not. It's always got enough money. So our whole understanding, and we can't obviously deal with it in a sh- short interview like this, but our whole understanding of what the role of taxation then is and what the role of debt is is quite is is quite different to what we believe. And mm-hmm. uh, I think what the pandemic has uh, demonstrated is that governments can spend big and quickly and uh, without the cat- catastrophic effects on interest rates or tax rates or any of the other things that the, the mainstream economic theories have been telling us and scaring us with. I think that most citizens can now see through that. They mightn't be able to understand it all mm. and uh, know all of the techn- technicalities, but they can see that the government can spend very quickly when it has to. Yes, it, it seems, seems that the uh, regressive uh, economic ideologies are, are trapped in this sort of medieval way of looking at the economy. To me, it's like they think the king's sitting on a big pile of gold and if he spends a piece of gold, he has to go and steal one from somebody else to be able to keep his pile of gold going. And and, and this is all about the real resources being a lot more complex and diverse than just a big pile of gold. We've managed to get off the gold pile, you know, 40-something years ago and, and it no longer applies, that, that, that logic, does it? Well, I mean, just take the most simple example. Start at first principles. Uh, you're the non-government and I'm the government. And I announce to you, so we're starting from day one of the world. And uh, I announce to you as the non-government, you've now got to pay, if you want to live in this society and not go to jail, you pay me $100 in tax. That's, that's my announcement today to you. Now, you stare, stare at me and say, well, I've got a problem. Where am I going to get that $100 from? Because it's my currency, not yours. I've start, we've just introduced this country. Mm-hmm. And then I say to you, okay, I want to, do, I want to get some private resources to do work in the public sector, in the government sector, to you know, build a school or mm-hmm. run a hospital or something. And so I'll offer you $100 worth of uh, uh, employment. And you you accept that, and you start working for the government. Employment goes up. Effectively, kickstarts the currency, doesn't it? Uh, yep. And and the point is, I pay you a hundred dollars in income in that in that first period. You can now pay the taxes, mm. but you couldn't pay the taxes before I'd spent the money before. And so the the taxes didn't allow me to spend the the hundred dollars. $100 allowed you to pay the taxes. Yeah, spending precedes uh, revenue. It, it requires. Now, go, yeah. now go, this, go one step further. I then announced that I need to increase employment and reduce unemployment. 
So I spend $120, you and I tax you $100. You've now got $20 extra. I've run a deficit as the government of $20. You've been able to save $20. Now, what happens if then I say to you, okay, I'll offer you a government bond. Would you like to convert your $20 of savings, which is earning no interest, into a government bond, which is earning a little bit of interest? You say, yes, I want to earn a bit of interest on my savings. So I sell you a bond. You pay me $20 of your savings. Your, your wealth, which was $20 in cash, is now $20 in government bonds. National debt's just gone up $20. But, but where did you get the $20 to buy the bonds? Where did, where did the $20 that the non-government sector paid the government to get the bonds from? It came from the deficit spending, from the $20 extra that I spent in the second year. That's where, so the government's really just borrowing money that it's previously spent. Mm. So, you know, I mean, that's a very simple example. We could get much more technical, but perhaps another time. (laughs) That should stimulate curiosity that the way you've been, the way we've been taught to believe that taxes fund spending, that debt fund spending is just all wrong. And it's been used as a vehicle to suppress government pursuing policies that would advance generalised wellbeing. Neoliberalism has failed wherever it's been tried. Actual economists are now saying that COVID might be the trigger for a structural shift to acknowledging the realities of modern monetary practice. What do you reckon? Well, I think, I think in short, I think that uh, ordinary citizens all around the world are working out that the promises that were made by this sort of neoliberal period, this market, prioritised market sort of period, free market sort of things, deregulation, privatisation, austerity, all of the rest of those things that uh, uh, accompany this this modern era, citizens have worked out that that hasn't delivered on its promise. They don't, they might necessarily know why, they might necessarily have all the answers, but they know it hasn't worked. And, and the dissonances are has been increasing for several years. It's it, You can see it in the uh, Brexit decision in Britain. You can see it in the yellow vests in France. You can see it in the uh, Trump election. And all of these things are expressions of anxieties and uncertainties and, a, and a, 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 the, the, an expression of citizens saying, this system's not delivering what it said. Mm. And so... More and more people then start, you know, the curious people start searching for answers. Well, why is what's gone wrong? Why isn't it delivered? What's what's the problem? And they've worked out that uh, uh, the mainstream economics is 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 wrong. It's mm. it's sold them sold them a uh, a puppy, as they say. <laughs> and uh, so then they start looking for alternative explanations and answers and they come across our work, Modern Monetary Theory, MMT, and they're starting to say that helps them resolve their cognitive dissonance. Yep. That, you know, they see in Japan there's big deficits, big public debt, central bank buying up all the government debt, no inflation, no interest rates rising, government selling 10-year bonds at negative yields. <laughs> in other words, people paying the government to buy... To, to let them lend them money. Uh, so they're starting to see that the mainstream predictions were all wrong. And the predictions from MMT and the understandings you get from reading and learning about MMT seem to 
match the reality much better. And so that's why more and more people are becoming attracted to our work. Do you think COVID might be that trigger that, that could create it, transformation? It started with the GFC clearly, but uh, the coronavirus crisis has certainly uh, ramped up government interventions to another level and uh, with without the negative financial effects and governments have always been able to prosecute a war whenever they want to or mm. bail out banks whenever they want to but now citizens are seeing that capitalism's on generalised life support and and the only thing between the collapse of capitalism and uh, it continuing is, is the intervention and the financial capacity of government mm. and people are seeing that and, and more and more people will work out what that means and what economics supports that. Yes, it seems to be the case. Well, look, finally, uh, I will just confess, I have a, a dangerous level of uh, economic knowledge. I did my high school uh, uh, economics course uh, back in the mid-80s and I did an economics 101 course at uni back in 1986. So, um, you know, I have a dangerous level of economic knowledge. I just wonder if, if I'm alone in, in shouting at the radio and the television when I hear and see these commentators that persist in, in trotting out these clearly debunked uh, theories, uh, you know, who talk about deficits and debts. I mean, are you with me there? Do, do you you end up shouting at the radio and the television when you? When you no, I don't. I, I I would have I would have had to replace my TV too many times if I did that. But I mean, people believe used to believe in the flat Earth, yep. and then they didn't. And um, uh, there were lots of scientists and experts who talked about the flat Earth and made careers on the basis of the Earth was flat. And throughout throughout the evolution of knowledge and academic disciplines, there's always these shifts go on where the old guard who, who preach a particular doctrine uh, and parade as if they have the knowledge, they eventually, if, if it's not knowledge, they eventually exit the scene and the new science emerges and I think that uh, we're in that sort of paradigm shift now where where this transition is taking place and uh, you won't have to shout at your TV forever. <laughs> That's a very hopeful note to wrap it up with, I think, Bill. Thank you so much for your time today. You're welcome. Take care. Bye-bye. That was Professor Bill Mitchell of the University of Newcastle, the man widely credited with coining the term modern monetary theory, explaining to us how modern monetary theory can actually free us from the shackles of neoliberalism. Let them say! Let them say! Let them say! Let them say! Everybody should live where they belong But where you belong Is where you love your kin It doesn't
doesn't depend on your creed nor color of your skin. Take me higher, take me there. Make us all higher, help us share. Take me higher, show me where. Make us all higher, help us share. Take Me Higher by Pressure Drop with Bill Mitchell on lead guitar. Are you looking for the courage to face the hard facts about our environmental crises? Do you want honest reporting on the global solutions that are at our fingertips? Would you like to know what simple, effective local actions you can take to make a positive difference to the state of the world today? 
Tune in to Environmental as Anything on 92.9 River FM every Saturday from 2 till 5 for all the news, interviews and analysis you need to make the future you want. For the future, we're hand in hand.